Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 31st, 2022. Regular viewers of the show know that over the last few months or even a couple of years, I've been arguing that Joe Biden is a more interesting character than some people present. I was particularly struck then uh, by an interesting piece uh, in Politico recently about how same-sex marriage has shaped Joe Biden. We're all interested, of course, in what exactly that means, how Joe Biden is actually shaped, what that means to him. The argument suggests that Biden was shaped in many ways by uh, an interview he did on Meet the Press in 2012 uh, with the then host, David Gregory, a very very famous interview in which he broached the idea of same-sex marriage probably for the first time uh, as a vice president. Um, The piece was written by my guest today, Sasha uh, Eisenberg, the author of The Engagement, America's quarter-century struggle over same-sex marriage. The book, The Engagement, came out last year, and it's just out in paperback. And I'm thrilled that Sasha is joining us from somewhere in Southern California. Uh, Sasha, I want to talk broadly about the book uh, in this conversation, but let's focus first on what your reading of Biden is in the context of same-sex marriage. What did it do for him, and what has he done for it? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of Biden's greatest political skills overall is is an incredibly keen um, antenna for the mainstream of his party. And this is something that's evident going back to uh, his first election to the Senate in 1972. And he, he's sort of always on a, on a variety of domestic issues, at least, found a way to remain in the safe center of his party. And that requires sort of gradually shifting positions in, in often imperceptible ways. And what, what what's different about marriage is it was very perceptible. He did this high-profile interview where he effectively undercut the Obama White House's position on on same-sex marriage. Um, and Biden had never before then been any type of sort of trailblazer on on gay and lesbian issues. He not only had sort of voted like a you know moderate Democrat who was afraid of being pulled too far to the left, but he remarkably for a guy who is you know very talky on issues, especially on issues of constitutional law. He sat out a lot of the big Senate debates on this issue over the 90s and 2000s. And one of, after he made this announcement in 2012, um, he basically sped up what had been a plan within the Obama White House for Obama to make a similar announcement weeks later. Um, but for for Biden, this really changed him. He uh, got a reception that was that was remarkable. He became for, you know, arguably for the first time in his career, a sort of hero to parts of the activist left. Um, particularly gay donors who became um, a sort of core part of his political coalition. And for the last 10 years, Biden has been um, a leader in his party in, on things like talking about trans issues. And remarkably for a guy who who um, kept his distance from the LGBT community throughout his career, it's now a sort of central part of his political identity to, to, to present himself as a champion for its causes. So, Sasha, what does this tell us about same-sex marriage? Does it mean that it's been, if you like, Bidenified in the sense that it's it's lost any coherent meaning? It's just become part of that blob in the center of the 
Democratic Party. How has that happened, given that originally it was an incredibly radical issue? Or am I being unfair to Joe Biden? No, I mean, I, I think that there's been this incredible opinion shift across American politics, across the two parties, across demographic and geographic lines. You know, so in, in 1996, this really becomes a national issue for the first time. Congress passes the Defense of Marriage Act, which um, effectively carves out uh, uh, same-sex unions and says that they'll be treated differently, that if a state, through its own laws, decides to recognize gay and lesbian couples, the federal government will not. Uh, at that point, 27% Amer of Americans told pollsters that they supported the right of same-sex couples to legally marry. As of this summer, that number is now at 70%. Over 50% of Republicans support it. So there's been, you know, probably the most monumental shift on a single political issue uh, of our lifetimes here. And it has transformed certainly the Democratic Party, which went from a party in the mid-90s um, that was uh, ambivalent at best about, about um, this question to one that in 2012, after Obama and Biden announced their switch, became... Uh, unified on this issue. And it has, in certain respects, um, divided the Republican Party, which which has not in, in the decade since um, known how it wants to engage on this. And we've seen some sort of small scale tensions between Republican political elites who thinking strategically believe that there is, you know, nothing to do with revisiting the legal questions here, and then activists who still feel um, probably in a way that's analogous to the way activists felt after Roe v. Wade, which is the Supreme Court may have spoken, but that doesn't mean that we have to accept this uh, new law of the land. Sasha, your book is a remarkable achievement, enormously erudite, well-researched, very well-received. You begin with uh, many of our old friend Bill Clinton. Uh, he seems to be on the, the other side of, of this world. What was it about Clinton that didn't allow him to understand the political potential for same-sex marriage. He was, he was, if anything, or he is, if anything, a political opportunist. Or has America simply changed so dramatically that Clinton could never have pioneered same-sex marriage? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this is, is that the world has changed and public opinion has changed faster than any politician could possibly um, lead on. Uh, in, in a real way. What, you know, I start the book with this scene of, of the Clinton White House in, in, um, in May of 1996, April of 1996, rather. And uh, Congress is about to introduce the Defense of Marriage Act. And Bill Clinton is being asked um, in a memo from his White House uh, counsel, what is your position on this question of should same-sex couples be allowed to marry? And um, what is amazing about that is that that is a question that did not exist in our politics in any meaningful way just four years earlier when he ran for president. Um, in 1992, the, the, the two large national gay rights organizations that, that questioned Democratic candidates had you know questionnaires that did not ask about this issue. Activists were not asked about this issue. I went back and interviewed a lot of um, people who, uh, donors, activists, who who met with Clinton over the course of the campaign. None of them could remember ever having a reason to ask him about this. And so part of the beginning of my story is about how something becomes an issue. And where my story starts in Hawaii in 1990, um, up until that moment, same-sex marriage is not in any meaningful way a political issue in the United States and not in any, it is not in any way a sort of viable legal objective for anybody. And so the first part of this book is about how sort of local events in Hawaii uh, made it real 
in a certain way. There's a court decision in Hawaii that the Hawaii. Yeah, this is the Baya versus Mike decision. Is yeah, it so 1993, the Hawaii Supreme Court becomes the first court on earth to rule that the fundamental right to marriage could extend to same-sex couples. And within a couple of years, a whole lot of politicians, Bill Clinton just most prominent among them, are having to sort of for the first time um, uh, decide what what their view is on this. And there's a a great like little lie that is told by the the White House press secretary after Clinton decides that he will sign this Defense of Marriage Act if it's passed by Congress. And, and the White House press secretary says, this has always been his position. He's always been opposed to same-sex marriage. Um, and it's a kind of delightful lie because it reveals, a, a, I think, a certain pathology among politicians, which is um, the belief that, you know, you, you need to establish that you have these deeply held principles. And the fact is hardly anybody in the United States had deeply held principles. Well, especially Bill Clinton. Of all, of, I don't think there's anyone in America who has less deeply held principles. Fair than enough. Bill. And um, that's one of the reasons, actually, I rather like him. But so, 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 Sasha, what does this tell us about the relationship between law and culture? So we have this huge event, in retrospect at least, I mean, in the New York Times, it, didn't, it wasn't a headline from people looking at this, this uh, major, uh, major event in retrospect uh, in the Supreme Court of Hawaii. But this wasn't a legal revolution. It was a cultural one. You're suggesting in your book and in this conversation that in an odd sort of zeitgeisty kind of way, America was ready for this. Is that fair? No, I mean, I think it took a while for America to look ready for this. I think in this case, you know, there's a sort of cycle here, I think, that that you're getting between law and culture and politics. And I think in this case, it took a court to establish the legal possibilities here for the culture to respond. So, you know, Joe Biden in his interview on Meet the Press talked about will and grace. Different people have um, uh, uh, different sort of cultural touchstones that they point to, the TV show Ellen, various other things that that sort of, you know, introduced Americans who might not know gay families in their in their day-to-day lives with with um, at least a fictionalized image of, of, of them. Um, but the cultural changes had to be built on the idea that this was a legal concept worth engaging with. And so that pop culture and then the sort of social change that took place beneath it um, uh, only became relevant to the question of marriage because I think the, the legal institutions had outlined it. But I think the biggest driver of this change ultimately over over you know 25 years is, is the, the sort of simple act of coming out, which you know, it's worth noting that unlike matters of race, um, religion, uh, national origin, immigrant stat, native-born immigrant status, people control the terms and conditions under which they announce, recognize, announce, disclose um, who they are with with regard to sexual orientation and for that matter, gender identity. And so um, that, what we've seen, I mean, I I would presume that, that the percentage of the American population that is uh, gay or lesbian is the same as it was 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, but at much higher rates are people willing to uh, acknowledge that and tell the people around them who they are. And that, what we, we know from social scientists, ends up being a, a remarkably potent driver of public opinion change. And so, um, uh, you know, people have, have told pollsters over and over again, the, the pollsters have found that the best predictor of some of these liberal opinion on these questions is, is how they answer the question, do you know 
somebody who is openly gay. And uh, people are far more likely to know somebody who's openly gay than they did before. And what's remarkable about that is, is that because we assume gays and lesbians are sort of evenly distributed throughout the population, that means that gay kids are being born to straight parents. Gay kids are being born in majority straight neighborhoods. They're being entering majority straight uh, uh, workplaces. And so a lot of the kind of patterns of, of uh, residential segregation, income inequality, are sort of defied by the biological distribution of, of sexual minorities. And I think that that has allowed change on, on, on this and other issues related to sexual orientation and gender identity to take place more quickly than attitudes on, on race or, or, or gen, traditional gender roles might, might have been able to shift. I want to get to race and traditional gender roles later, but I wonder, why, I wonder if one of the reasons why it's been so quickly accepted, perhaps even embraced in mainstream America, is that America is a relatively conservative country. Uh, country. And this is a conservative law. It's not about what you can do in your bedroom. It's about whether or not, as, um, uh, as a gay person, you're allowed to be married. Under the law, Andrew Sullivan, British conservative writer, uh, his 1989 piece in the New Republic, Case for Gay Marriage, very influential. Um, it is a conservative idea that gay people should be able to get married like non-gay people, isn't it, Sasha? I mean, there's it nothing is. radical about it. No, and I think it is notable that, that the other major gay political breakthrough of the same period was... Um, to end the ban on military service by openly gay and lesbian people. And you, you could argue that the two most conservative institutions in American life are, are marriage and the military, two institutions, frankly, that straight people did not have a whole lot of use for wanting to voluntarily join by the end of the 20th century. And, um, uh, and institutions that I think demand more of people in terms of sacrifice and commitment than they, than they necessarily give back in, in, in rewards. And so, there was this big active debate, uh, a very abstract debate um, uh, that that Sullivan was uh, engaging with in 1989 when he wrote that. And at the time, because this was a sort of abstract, this wasn't a real, there wasn't an active court case anywhere in the country. This was a, a debate that was taking place mostly among uh, gay lawyers, legal academics, activists about whether marriage would even be um, desirable for gays and lesbians. And there was a large movement uh, sort of or faction within the community that had been shaped by the sort of liberationist part of, of, um, uh, of, of the gay community post Stonewall. And that, that sort of be believed that an essential part of gay identity was the potential to shape um, sexual mores and behaviors in their own terms. And, and they resisted this idea from put forward by Sullivan and others that an objective for uh, gays and lesbians should be acceptance into these sort of, you know, mainstream traditionalist institutions. And they saw an essential part of who they were as rebelling against the, the family structure of their parents. And so um, ultimately, you know, I think gay marriage looked and, and, and you know, incredibly radical when, when the idea first came on the scene in the 90s. Um, in that, you know, in theory, it would be, you know, redefining this, in, this, this millennia old institution of marriage, which to be fair, we have redefined in a whole bunch of different ways over the 
past decades and, 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 and centuries, but this would be one big one. But then, then I think what happened was after gay and lesbian couples were able to legally marry in the United States for the first time in Massachusetts in 2004, the conservatism of it sort of shone through, which is um, society didn't change much. There were two people who had made a decision to be committed to one another and wanted to have their names on each other's mortgages and, and you know, pretty boring stuff um, and, and stuff that most yeah, I mean, there's nothing. Are you married, Sasha? I am. Yes. I mean, it's same with me. I've actually, I enjoy it so much. I've been married twice. There's nothing more boring than marriage, is there really? Which is a no, good thing. I mean, it's a choice to be boring. Um, right. Exactly. And to accept, to accept boredom over, over unpredictability. And, and, and I think the other thing that was really important about this was, you know, there was this, some of the sort of catastrophizing that folks on the right did before Massachusetts was this would change, you know, this would be the end of Western civilization. This would be the end of the American family structure. Uh, and one of the things that was notable was they, after gay and lesbian couples were able to begin marrying, they had a lot of trouble pointing to who was harmed by this. And I think that gets to, you know, both the sort of conservatism, but also how sort of self-contained the marriage is, which is, um, you know, if, if anything, what we've seen in the sort of 20, almost 20 years since gay and lesbian couples have been able to marry in the United States is that the communities around them take security from the idea of knowing that people have sort of signed up for mutual dependence and, 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 and the like. And so um, I, I think, it, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. that This is an important part of, of, of the story is that um, uh, the, the sort of conservative part of, of these intra community debates ended up, ended up winning out. Your new uh, the review of your uh, your New York Times review um, uh, comes with the headline about the religious right. How much did the religious right fight this, and how much did they acknowledge defeat? Did they wave the white flag when, or have they waved the white flag when it's come to same-sex marriage, or is this going to be another Roe versus Wade thing where they simmer for fifty years and eventually overturn it somehow? So they drove the opposition to this, you know, starting in the wake of that Hawaii decision in 1993. Now, who the sort of the central actors were in the religious right changes a bit from time to time. The, the Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, was the first institution um, to really take hold of this and um, set up a campaign both in Hawaii and uh, in Utah and on the mainland to push back against um, the Hawaii courts uh, starting in 1994. Uh, eventually, sort of, um, they created uh, uh, an alliance then, first in Hawaii and then on the mainland with the Catholic Church. Um, and then eventually evangelical and, and fundamentalist Protestants stepped in and, and they, you know, largely carried this campaign nationally um, in, in the decades that followed. Uh, you know, after it became clear to those who were on the losing side of this, even before the Supreme Court ruled in June of 2015, that um, it was seen as sort of inevitable what the court would do. And so the folks who who were losing um, accepted defeat even before the, the opinion came down and the sort of anti-gay marriage right shifted into sort of three different directions. One, some folks just basically left the United States and have been pushing anti-gay politics overseas, especially in, in parts of uh, Eastern Sub-Saharan Africa, but um, uh, going to places where, you know, fighting efforts to, to decriminalize gay sex, stuff like that. 
Um, then there was a push to uh, uh, just fight on trans issues, gender identity related issues, where the public opinion was um, a lot closer to where it was on gay rights 20 years ago and where state laws were largely unformed, which gave religious conservatives the opportunity to sort of be on the front foot, um, setting the terms of debate instead of uh, having to respond to them. And then the third area are these sort of religious liberty, religious freedom exemptions. And we've seen a few of these cases come to the Supreme Court. There was one that involved a cake a baker in Colorado who did not want to make a custom cake uh, for a same-sex couple his wedding, he said, would violate his his religious beliefs. There's one with the social service agency in Philadelphia, that a uh, Catholic social service agency that said they would not, uh, with a city contract, said they would not place uh, foster children with, with same-sex families. Um, and all of these are, a lot of these cases look like marriage cases because the facts of them have to do with um, gay and lesbian couples who are married. But there are fundamentally different posture, which are, you know, they ask religious uh, groups asking to be shielded from the court's mandate. And fundamentally, it is a posture that that I think reflects defeat. These are, you know, for decades, the sort of animating idea behind the religious right in the U.S. was the idea that this was a, you know, fundamentally Judeo-Christian country and that the laws should reflect the, the that sort of majoritarian view. And um, now what we see with these religious liberty uh cases and efforts to draft new laws is the acknowledgement, uh, the concession that that um, uh, religious Christians at least are are a minority and the and the argument is that they need to be shielded uh, from the sort of you know tyranny of a of, of an unsympathetic majority. And so I think that this uh, there's a lot of talk about what the court will do um, if if it strikes down Roe, what it will do next if it strikes down Roe. And I do think the politics of this are 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 radically different in that that um, public opinion has continued to move on marriage. One of the things that's notable on abortion is over 50 years, sort of top line public opinion in the United States has remained more or less stable. So you do not get a lot of uh, Republican leaders who want to see the court in any way revisit this issue. I think they would prefer to, to, to have it just, you know, die and disappear. Sasha, what impact has this had within the politically within the gay community? mentioned earlier Andrew Sullivan and his 1989 argument as a conservative, his case for gay marriage, which got a lot of um, got a lot of uh, attention in the New Republic. Sullivan, I know, sees this or the, 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 the right to gay marriage as a full stop in the political struggle. There are many others on the left within the, the gay community who don't. How divisive has this quarter century struggle over same-sex marriage being within the gay community itself? Because there are, there are very different political factions and uh, thinking ideologies within the community. Not, not, all, uh, not all American uh, gays obviously think the same. Yeah, I mean, so the first thing is, you know, we, we now often say LGBT and it's important to recognize that that the marriage question was something that was... Yeah, I know Sullivan doesn't like that term. He doesn't but like I'm, that I'm either. Happy for you to use it. No, and I just would, would point out in this instance, it's, it's you know, incomplete or unhelpfully uh, uh, unspecific in that gays and lesbians uh, had an interest in laws that, that um, denied same-sex couples the ability to marry. But many bisexual and transgender people... Um, were always able to marry the person they loved, regardless of what what state laws were. And so I think one of the 
the divides here that 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 Sullivan uh, in particular of late I think is is focused on is is you know the idea that this coalition of gays and les gay men lesbians bisexual and transgender people um, has a lot of different priorities and um, uh, this like many issues uh, were relevant to some parts of the community but not others. There's also a broader critique that I think plays into that that. Um, that so much money focused political capital were expended on winning marriage rights uh, at the ex while other um, movement priorities stalled. And um, you hear a bit about this, about about uh, uh, trans issues in particular. But I think you know notable is on the same day that Congress passed or the Senate passed the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996, there was also a vote on an employment non-discrimination bill, which would have written sexual orientation into, into federal laws about, about uh, workplace discrimination. Um, and it came up one vote short, and everybody thought that that was the next big piece of, of federal progress. And we're now 25, more than 25 years later, and Congress still has yet to pass a, a bill that um, adds sexual, sexual orientation or, or now gender identity to federal civil rights laws. And there's some sense that the other, um, maybe more sort of practical or immediate concerns were, were bypassed because of the interests of some large donors and prominent figures within the movement to, to focus on marriage. That said, there is, I think people often misread the class dynamic here. And this really came through in my reporting. You hear a lot of people say, you know, this is like a, that marriage is a rich white man's issue and that you know the real concerns of of um, people of color within the movement or otherwise are are we're, we're given short shrift by this focus on marriage, but um, and while I think it is true that lar some large donors within the movement who are basically overwhelmingly focused on on things like the estate tax exemption were really interested in figuring out how they could legally leave property to their to to their partners and thus focused on marriage. Um, for working class people who, you know, the, the sort of middle, upper middle class of the gay community over over decades, often people had the wherewithal to kind of contract their way into something that looked like marriage. They didn't have the symbolic recognition, but you could figure out how to write your partner into your into your will, into your estate, onto your mortgage, have a power of attorney, all of that stuff. If you if you have that sort of you know time and ability to engage lawyers to do it. Um, Real folks who do not have the means to uh, or wherewithal to engage lawyers uh, have huge parts of, you know, basic economic citizenship um, denied them without marriage. And so one of the things that was surprising to me when I did reporting on this was hearing how much interest in winning marriage rights was coming from not just from like, you know, rich white gay guys on the coast, but from working class folks in the middle of the country who realize that without being, without having one's relationship legally recognized, there was no way to ensure that a partner would get your pension or uh, be covered under your health insurance plan or um, be able to take care of your kids after something happens to you or, you know, avoid you getting, um, you know, evicted from your, your home. Uh, uh, in case of an emergency. And so I think that there's been even the, in, the, the sort of criticism within the community has been often a little simplistic about who actually benefits from the, these changes in marriage laws. Uh, Sasha, um, we've done a number of shows on 
transgender community did one with Paula Stone Williams, who, has a, who had a new book out last year as a woman. Where is Joe Biden and your center of the Democratic Party when it comes to transgendered rights? These are incredibly controversial and divisive. Uh, is he, given his sensitive political antennae, is he steering clear of this one? No, surprisingly not. I mean, I think you can make the case that this is the one area where Joe Biden is not afraid of being pulled too far to the left. He is on crime. He is on immigration. Um, you know, he, in his first day of the union address said, uh, paraphrasing here slightly, you know, to, I want to say to the trans children of the United States, your president has your back. His justice department has, has gotten involved in, in places like Texas where state laws have, have targeted trans children and families. Um, this is what it took a it took 20 years almost 20 years for the democratic party to reach consensus that it was a party that favored same-sex marriage it has reached consensus that um on on the uh urgency of of standing with 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 uh trans folks much more quickly than that and there's really no and some of this is a story just of how the parties have polarized but there is you know, there's a far less uh, uh, variance among Democratic politicians from Biden, you know, to his left or to his right on, on trans issues than there was on marriage a decade or two ago. Finally, um, Sasha, we're still, of course, reeling from the terrible tragedy in Texas, the school shooting, mass murder there. One of the headlines today on CB, CNBC is about House Democrats apparently looking to pass gun control legislation by early June. For those people, particularly on the left in the Democratic Party, who want to aggressively push on gun control legislation, what can they learn from America's quarter century struggle over same-sex marriage? Is, is there anything to be optimistic about, given, uh, given what you've covered in the engagement, or are they entirely separate issues, incomparable? They are separate issues, and, and, and the ways that they differ may be more than, than they are alike. But I think one of the things that was really important was the um, gay marriage campaigners harnessing this sort of basic social science insight, this idea of contact theory, that people move left are more receptive to uh, uh, gay rights appeals when they know somebody who's openly gay. And obviously a lot of that takes place organically. People come out and you, you realize in your workplace or your neighborhood, you know somebody who's gay. Um, but campaigns also starting in 2010, 11, 12, worked on, on sort of um, you know, mechanizing that into their operations and change the way that they used volunteers and canvassers and had people talk about why this issue was personal to them, um, uh, either because they were gay or they had a gay relative. Um, and I think that there are some sort of tactical opportunities for uh, folks who've been um, uh, affected by, by gun violence probably to uh, uh, talk about its effects on them and in the hopes that it, it, it may uh, shift the position of people who now sort of have, have a, a sense of a personalized um, stake in that discussion. In other words, maybe politics isn't just local, it's personal. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that's the big story here is, is you know, without, without folks coming out to the people that they knew and that being amplified at times by, by social media, by pop culture and the like, um, it, it's pretty clear that the country would not have transformed on 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 gay and lesbian issues the way that it has in, in, in my lifetime. Well, maybe there's a glimmer of a hope then for those of us 
hoping and praying for gun control legislation. Anyway, uh, congratulations, Sasha. Uh, Eisenberg, the engagement, America's quarter century struggle over same-sex marriage. Uh, masterful. Final statement, I think, on this one. I can't imagine there'll be another book on it. Congratulations. It's out in paperback. Uh, Sasha, uh, what else have you been reading these days? Anything else that's worth noting? Yeah, a couple things I'll mention. Um, uh, there's a book Will Salatan wrote about um, uh, the abortion debate uh, a decade ago called Bearing Right that was about a sort of, I think, largely underappreciated a period in this debate that I went back and reread recently about about in the late 80s, uh, some pro-choice activists having some interesting breakthroughs with changes in their messages. It's a very good book about how political forces communicate. And then I'm expecting a child soon, my first. And so congratulations. Been, thank you. I've been reading. Your a life will of, never be the same. Enjoy yourself while you can. That's all that's I can I've say. been warned. Um, so I've been reading a lot of books on things related to being a parent. And Alison Gopnik, who is a uh, mm. behavioral uh, uh, psychologist, I guess, um, uh, at UC Berkeley has written a series of books that are, um, incredibly smart, uh, uh, while also being useful, but, but have sort of changed the way that I think about, you know, using a sort of evolutionary biology lens in terms of what babies are born with and what they learn and how those things interplay and what the responsibility of parents is accordingly to, to, um, to help them along. So I've, I've, I was not expecting to find things that were, um, intellectually stimulating as, as, as well as useful in, in this part of my reading list, but, but I have.